Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The nail in the coffin! Hello and welcome to The Nail in the Coffin, part of the world-famous Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Tom Valentino. I'm joined by Travis Uly. Trav, how are you, buddy? Good evening, Tom. Doing doing well, buddy. How about yourself? Uh, I'm good. It's uh, good to be back in the saddle. We've uh, got plenty to talk about here. The weather's getting nice. I'm getting ready to break out the golf clubs finally. The uh, the Northeast Ohio golf scene is in full swing, but uh, the professional ranks have... uh, some interesting stuff happening as well. You and I uh, both like golf, and I think that's the one sport that we don't really uh, talk much about on here. It's uh, What do you say we make up for that a little bit tonight? I say we do. There's plenty to talk about. It's been an eventful weekend, and I expect a few more fireworks this week. So, yeah, let's do it. Well, we had to uh, to bring in a ringer, and uh, we've got uh, Guy Cipriano, the editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. Guy, thanks for joining us. Tom and Travis, it's great to be here. It's always a joy to talk golf and wow being called a ringer i'm not sure i've ever been called that on a on a a scramble team (laughs) you could add that to your twitter profile after we're done here all right so tell us about this this new tour the the live tour our uh give give our listeners a crash course what is this who's behind it how did this whole thing come together how did we get to where we are right now quite simply or maybe complexly i don't know how to look at it it's one of the biggest golf stories really since Tiger Woods turned professional in the 1990s. And it's a gigantic sports business story. I mean, how often do we get to see this in real time uh, before our own very eyes of a global sports league launch from, from scratch? And I think there were a lot of skeptics, whether this would ever happen, whether it was just hot air or just a a bunch of people messing with the, the PGA tour, but there's a, long history and especially I should say long but in the last three to five years you had heard a lot of talks about potential tours launching to compete with the PGA Tour Uh, this is one of a few there was another one called the Premier Golf League and that might even still be a lot alive despite live launching and uh, like I said there were a lot of skeptics and whether this would would happen but Anyone that's been following the game, especially the business side of the game, the last three to five years, uh, there was talk that this was going to happen, and there was really no timetable put it, put on it. You know, uh, I think a lot of people underestimate it how much money is in the game of golf and how global the game of golf is. You're not talking just the United States here. I mean, there are dozens upon dozens of countries that produce elite golfers and have recreational golfers. So it's just not an American thing here. And, you know, this one got started before some of the others that were being discussed. I mean, 
quite frankly, it comes down to, to money and there's a lot of money here. So the live golf tour live is the number 54 in Roman numerals. 54 is the number of holes. These events are, is uh, being funded by the public investment fund. And that's a Saudi Arabian group that has a lot of money. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to disperse the different efforts in, uh, to promote Saudi Arabia to the rest of the world, right? So Saudi Arabia is an energy-based economy and they're looking to diversify from that and uh, add different levels and layers to their economy. And, and sports is one way that they're using this money to market Saudi Arabia to the, to the rest of the world. So there's, you hear that there's like $2 billion already being invested in Live Golf. Well, there's $600 billion in this investment fund and that's only going to, increase it's going to be a trillion dollar investment uh, fund sooner than later and you know saudi arabia's involvement with golf at least pro golf started in 2019 when the saudi international was launched and that was part of the european tour the european tour is now called the dp world tour so that tournament launched in 2019 dustin johnson won it they played it in 2020 right before the pandemic and uh Graham McDowell won. It came back last year and Dustin Johnson won it. And they played it again this year. And Harold Varner III, who, who was born in Akron, won it this year. By far his biggest win is a, a professional. Uh, there was a stacked field there. So you, you, you saw that, you know, through this involvement and also the Aramco Team Series is a women's golf series. Five events are going to be played this year. Those are a million dollar each purses. It's a team competition. And that started in 2022. So that they've also been using some of that public investment fund to uh, prop up the women's game or to get involved with the women's game of golf. So I think that you saw this coming. You knew that golf was a vehicle. You weren't sure just um, when it was going to happen and how much money was going to be involved and who the uh, the executives would be behind it and who the actual players that would play would be. And I think it really got real for people two weeks ago when they announced their initial list of players. And then last week they, they played a tournament, 54 hole event in London and, it, it, it's full throttle now. There's seven more tournaments here uh, this year. They're going to be, uh, geez, anywhere between a dozen and 15 next year. And I think um, they're in this at least for the next three to five years. And we'll see what happens. There, there's a lot of money behind it. And it's certainly changed the world of golf. But to me, it's a fascinating story because, like, you think of all the sports leagues out there. I mean, how many of them this well-funded? And this much different from what they're competing against have launched from scratch right before our own eyes. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. There are a lot of questions or there, there are a lot of questions that haven't been answered yet. And I, I suspect that this story might only get bigger as the summer progresses. What's what's so interesting to me about this? I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting to me about this, but we've seen other football leagues try to start up, but all of those are in the NFL's off season. They're looking to be yep. kind of a niche product. That's going to give you a, an outlet for football. They're not trying to compete with the NFL. They're under no illusions of competing with the NFL. You know, the, uh, um, you get the big three and uh, the basketball tournament. Again, those are little niche events that happen yep. in the NBA's off season to, to complement the established pro league. This is the first time since what maybe the, ABA in the seventies that there's a professional sports league that's launching, that's trying to really go head to head in season with the, the established circuit. 
Yeah, I would say the difference is there is that the, golf is such a bigger game globally than basketball was in the 70s or the, you know, football is now. Right. Today, and, you know, we think about seasons and when sports are played, well, the the, the golf season or the, the, the spectator golf season in South Africa might be a different cycle than it is in the United States, and it's different in Australia because their, their summers are, are winter. You're talking different time zones and – you know, this is affiliated with the the, the Asian tour. The the Asian tour is the, the tour that's below live, and it's really going to get interested, interesting here in the next. You know, I'd probably say maybe not next year, but two years from now, when they're going to use the Asian tour as kind of the minor league circuit for live, and you might see relegations and promotions and demotions and free agency. So uh, I think this is so much different because if if you look at the PGA tour and how it operates. It's a American based tour in a game that's hugely global with stars in a lot of different countries. And uh, where there's really a gap in the PGA tour is the fact that they don't go internationally that much. I mean, the European tour has effectively been uh, whittled down because of uh, a lot of the best European players in the last decade. Uh, playing full time on the PGA tour, so that's really helped the European tour. And if you remember in the in the '80s and early '90s, there were a lot of great players coming from the European tour. Um, there was a lot of curiosity around Nick Faldo and Seve Ballesteros and Ian Woosnam and Jose Maria Alfaro and Sandy Lyle and that that generation of and Bernard Langer. That generation came through. Well, they were pr- primarily European tour players that just came over to the United States and play play the. Um, the majors and maybe a few other tournaments, but now the PGA tour requires its members to basically play 15 events a year. So you can't really do that like that generation golfers do. So if you think of how the tour uh, is trying to operate in such an, uh, an American vacuum and such a global sport that there, there, there's an opening for this. And, you know, Greg Norman's the CEO and commissioner and face of live golf, uh, certainly a very um, uh, controversial, polarizing, bold, brash figure. But I mean, he's been trying to start a world, tour since the 1990s you know when he was the number one player in the world and you know he he's had a lot of resentment towards the pga tour because they took his idea for world golf championships in the mid 90s and started their own world golf championship series in 1997 and here we are in 2022 and i think there's only two world golf championships events left and they're both played in the united states so you think about this and how big this game is globally. There's 66.6 million people that play golf around the world. 25.1 million are in the United States. That's 41 million golfers, not to mention golf spectators, you know, that aren't in the U S. So, you know, it's almost like, uh, I don't think people are thinking about the global implications of this and the the whole, and maybe the global um, sports cycle for a, a golf league. That's just not American based. So real quick, I guess I have a question on the business side. I feel like we've thrown the word investment around and I feel like maybe it doesn't feel like an investment to me. Investments, typically part of the investment is getting a return, right? If you throw a bunch of money in, you get money out. This does not seem to be the goal at all. Um, It feels purely like a PR thing. Um, They want to attract more outside investment in other areas, I don't get the feeling that they expect live to generate money for them. Is that fair to say, or am I reading? Cause if you throw $200 million at a guy at one guy, I don't know what the overall, you know, the report on Dustin Johnson was like 125 million pretty quick. You're looking at a billion dollars that just got thrown 
around, do we expect they're going to make a billion dollars off of this? Maybe not directly. But... Uh, they probably need to get on a TV channel that someone's heard of. And like, it doesn't seem like they're making it out as a way for them to make money, at least not directly. They, they expect money to come from other areas and make it worth the investment. But is live expected to be profitable as its own enterprise? See, I think this is where a lot of the thinking is narrow-minded. When you think about the game of golf and why 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 it's such an important business tool, Travis and Tom, uh, think about this. How many times do businesses take clients out for golf you know, just in the hopes that maybe they're going to do business with them, right? So for, for them, this is a whole global objective. And, and think about the PGA Tour sponsors, right? They're putting up 8 to $12 million dollars. Um, a week to sponsor a PGA tour event. You got somebody like FedEx is putting up way more than that. You know, is there a direct return on that investment? I, I think a lot of it's access and whining and dining and taking your key people to these events and playing in the pro-ams and having them sit in the, uh, in, in the luxury suites. And I, I suspect that the, the, the group behind live is going to do the same thing with the live tour. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to have, I think uh, uh, they have exclusive draft parties and I think they're going to, going to eventually be a pro-am aspect so you know you talk about a nation that has a lot of money and is trying to get in a lot of the different industries if you study this public investment fund it's all over the place it's in so many different um aspects of life across the world right now i, I don't know if you know getting a dollar for dollar on the golf or even turning a profit on the golf is what they're looking for they're looking to use this as an indirect business tool to promote and prop up a lot of the other things they're doing and you know I make the argument here that golf was relatively cheap for them to get into uh, compared to other sports. You know, these numbers sound jarring, right? Like, you know, 200 million for Phil Mickelson and hundred million for Dustin Johnson and $25 million purses. And, you know, I think the team championships going to have a 40 or $50 million purse. Those numbers sound great to us, but think about, and I put this on Twitter. I mean, you, you think about it, major league baseball's paying Bryce Harper a 300, what with the Phillies payment, it's a $330 million deal. I mean, essentially, Liv has gotten uh, Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson, who are global sports stars and probably more recognizable around the world uh, for less than what Bryce Harper is going to get long term from the Philadelphia Phillies. You know, the PGA Tours um, revenue last year was one point five two billion. You think about what an NFL team's worth and, you know, essentially the group behind Liv and the public investment fund is buying an entire sports league for the price of an NFL or MLB team. There are uh, certain world events that have happened that make uh, the, the folks behind this tour um, a little uncomfortable uh, for a lot of the public. And, and it's put a lot of people not at ease uh, with this tour. And it's frankly, you know, you mentioned Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and uh, some of the other uh, pros that we've seen, sign up for these events, um, it's, it's put them in a spot where they've had to answer some really difficult questions. Correction. They've been asked some very difficult questions. They have not had to answer them. <laughs> That's true. Do you think would the reception and, you know, even the, there's been, you know, some pretty uh, public rejection from some of the guys who um, have stayed with the PGA tour you know, I don't think it was an accident that when Rory McIlroy won over the weekend, the uh, the Canadian Open, he, he made a point to say it was his 21st win. 
and what a big deal that was for him, considering that Greg Norman has 20 career wins. And I think Justin Thomas was like, yeah, congratulations on your 21st win, winky face on uh, on Twitter. Um, there's a lot, you know, Tiger Woods, I think we had heard, had gotten an offer of quite a bit of money and said like, no, I'm staying, uh, you know, with the PGA Tour. Do you think the reaction and the reception of the Live Tour would be different if it were being financed by some other group or, or some other individual, like let's say hypothetically um, Steve Ballmer, you know, the Clippers owner, uh, Microsoft guy, more money than he knows what to do with, or, or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or, or somebody in America that's got, uh, you know, more money than, than they know where to stuff under their mattress. <laughs> if they were uh, backing this, would that change the discussions around this tour? You know, I honestly don't know enough about those things. I wish I could give you an educated answer. I don't know enough about geopolitical affairs. I And know, it's not our area of covered, expertise either. Golf and business. And quite honestly, who in the sports media really knows enough about any of this to comment on it? Logically, the world is a huge place. It's a complex place. Golf is a global game. If you look at the coverage of the Live Tour, just when you, you read different things and listen to different podcasts, I think the view of it outside the United States is different and a little less hostile than it is in the United States. And also, uh, you know, you mentioned people like Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas, you know, feeling the fires a bit, but they're going to benefit from this, right? Like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Sergio Garcia and Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Reed and Louis Oosthuizen are taking huge public relation grenades right now. But guess what? If you're any pro golfer, whether you're going to go PGA Tour or live, the, what you're making and the value of, you to the global sports world has gone up now because of some of these contracts and numbers and purses that are going to be thrown out to because they even, you know, the players that are going to stick with the PGA tour, the PGA tour is going to have to um, do more to take care of its stars or they risk losing more players. I think, I think the, the value of every pro golf star has gone up um, pretty significantly. And you can make the argument that golf stars are underpaid. You know, that sounds crazy to the normal person but if you think about it you show up at a pga tour event you're not guaranteed of making a dollar you have to show up on wednesday you have to play in a pro-am with with the sponsor and some big money people and then you may not even make the cut on friday and you go home i mean what other sport in the world maybe besides tennis has that type of structure too so you know the, the pga tour had a business model that was right for the picking from a competitor and like i said if if, if it wasn't live, there were other groups lining up to, to, to do this. It was in a very vulnerable position. It's a 501 C6, so it's tax exempt. So there's only so much it can do with revenues and profits and payouts to players. And the way it's governed and the, the voting structure is that the, you know, the, the Rory McElroy's and the Justin Thomases and the Phil Mickelson's and the Dustin Johnson's have just as much say in the, in the tour politics as the 150th player in the world. So it's a very complex thing. And, you know, the world is a, a, huge place and I, I would be cautious to um you know i've tried to read as much as i can from sources and listen to as, as many sources as i can from outside the united states on this matter because it's just not a u.s audience and uh you know the, like i said there could be a hole in the global sports calendar that this is that this is filling right now it's it's interesting because i'll be honest i'm i'm relatively strongly against the the general premise of it because it to me it feels like it's an investment and i hate the term because i feel like a lot of people use it and don't totally really know what it means um of sports washing 
Um, we've heard accusations of this at the Saudi tour. Like we've heard them bring it up at the, or the Saudi was it invitational. The one that you mentioned earlier that did this one a couple times when that first started, there was a segment that brought up like that, what they called this, what it, they think it is. And what I think a lot of folks seem to think it is, um, which is a, a PR effort to win Saudi Arabia, some much needed good publicity. Um, and there have been, you know, mentions of you shouldn't be there taking this money, but it's, you know, one weekend. So it, people talk about it when it happens. And then when the weekend's over, people stop talking about it. Right now it's a thing that's obviously becoming much more prevalent. It's much more visible and it's much longer time period. So do you think, I guess, do you think it's something that the guys that are playing it are, were they expecting and were they prepared for the questions and for the backlash that they're getting now, because it doesn't really seem like they thought it was going to be as vocal and loud as it has been. Um, even though it's not, it, in my opinion, it shouldn't really surprise anyone that they're getting the questions they're getting. I guess the answer would be we'll see in a year. If they're not getting those questions anymore and it's less hostile towards them, whatever the goal of this thing was, is working. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and look at the Saudi International. If you look at the field in 2019 compared to 2022, the fields have gotten progressively better. And in 2022, it was played opposite the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And I believe it was like it got 50 or 60 percent more world ranking points than the, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So I, I don't think you can judge what they're doing on the, the instant flash reaction right now. It's like, you know, if a year from now, these players aren't getting the same blowback. Uh, you could say that the world has moved on to something else. The media has moved on to something else. And the whole point of whatever they're trying to achieve long-term is working. I'm not saying I agree with it or not, but but they're, they're, they're pretty smart in what they're try, trying to do. And I think they've been underestimated up to this point because you think of how many people didn't think that they were actually going to launch this league. So, you know, the more that they're underestimated, the more they're probably going to achieve in whatever their end goal is. I'm thinking here, based on what I've seen with some of their other ventures, I would not be surprised at all if, you know, the public outrage that, you know, you're seeing dominate headlines uh, in some corners right now uh, does tend to dissipate in the next year. Or so, you know, I think of like WWE, they a few years ago signed yep. a, a deal to do two of their pay-per-view events over in the Middle East a year for 10 years for an outrageous sum of money. And when that deal was first announced, it was a whole lot of the same, same, same headlines, you know, a little different because I think people view uh, pro wrestling in a different light than professional golf, but it was a lot of the same themes. And here we are a few years later and, you know, you get past the pandemic and travels opening up and the furor over that has tended to die down. You know, guy, the one thing that you had mentioned before was the the nature of, you know, how the PGA Tour is structured as a nonprofit. And my understanding with that is it kind of limits them in terms of being able to offer, you know, those appearance fees, basically, that uh, the Live Tour is guaranteeing these golfers. Do you foresee this in other pro sports leagues in the United States have had that non nonprofit status that was very advantageous for tax purposes 
that they eventually had to give up for other business reasons. Do you see that uh, crossroads coming for the PGA Tour where they're going to have to fundamentally change how they operate? They're, they're going to have to because, uh, you know, when you see Charles Schwartzel making $4.75 million with the, the team and the individual bonus in one week, which would be 10th on the entire season PGA Tour money list right now, how are you going to compete with that? You know, I think that right now um, the PGA Tour is trying to tug at people's hearts and play the emotion card and the geopolitical card. But when you, when you think about numbers, and again, this is a sports business story. This is a giant sports business story. How do you operate the same way you did in 1968 in 2022 and beyond to, to compete with this? So they're, they're going to have to be some changes made there. But how do you make those changes? How long do they take? This isn't something that you you phase out over the next five years. This is, this is a, a threat to you right now. And, um, you know, it, it's desperation mode. That's why you saw Jay Monahan go on CBS yesterday and boy, how uncomfortable did he look during that, that <laughs> broadcast? Cause he knows that this has just started and there, there are other players that are gonna, gonna drop. And, you know, it, it was a heartwarming story in Canada and it was an awesome tournament with awesome competition and, you know, I was at the last Canadian Open in 2019. The Canadians love golf and they didn't have their open the last two years because of COVID-19 and how things were a little bit different in Ontario than other places the PGA Tour plays. So I think yesterday was a, you know, a, a cool moment for the, the PGA Tour. But how do you keep that going? Like, how do you, um, you know, when they're playing in Minnesota in july and it's the 97th player on the, the fedex cup list dueling with the 80th player on the fedex cup list i mean this is this is immediate this is real this this got pulled off i i think they underestimated what they were up against and you know you can't just change your operating structure overnight and there were other groups like the premier golf league and even live was willing to work with the pga tour to get something going on a global scale but they just aren't able to because it's such a um archaic operating model for them. So uh, I don't know what they have besides trying to, trying to just, you know, use their media partners and, and their influence and their legacy to, to, to just um, make it so hostile for the players jumping right now. But like I said, that's probably going to dissipate over time and it's just going to become more normal in you know, four or five, six weeks when you hear, you know, a name going to live like, Oh, well, you know, there goes another one, you know, another loss for the PGA tour. And I also would say strategically, Liv has done a um, interesting job of picking their initial wave of players because they're players that are already polarizing or hated that have faced a lot of heat over the years. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, that they're offering big deals to people like Ian Poulter and Patrick Reed and, and Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau and, you know, Sergio, people that have sort of been villains in golf because I think they're equipped to handle what's coming their way right now. It, like I said, this is a, you, you can say what you want about them and deba debate that all the issues that are political and outside golf and business, but this is a group that exactly knows what it's doing, what it's want, what it wants and how they're going to try to try to get there. And, you know, to underestimate them like they were for years is, is pretty foolish on the PGA tour PGA tours. I will, I will say watching an extensive amount of the media, the, the press conferences and things like that, I don't know that these guys were particularly equipped for what was coming to them. They all seemed like a deer in headlights when they were actually 
answering tough questions that you don't golf get media out of radio. Soft. I mean, when does the golfer ever have to ask? I mean, it's something they haven't. Think of a guy like Patrick Reed. He's had his fair share of scandals, right? Scandals on golf terms, not anywhere like yeah. this, but, you know, cheating things where he's been called out for stuff and he's had to speak towards it. Um, this is a whole nother thing. You know, they're used to sort of being able to no comment, all that sort of stuff. They're not letting them off the hook in these cases, which, like you said, is, is incredibly rare for, from golf media. But um, I'm honestly, I'm incredibly interested to see what it looks like this week. What sort of reception do you think these guys are going to get at the U.S. Open? And I guess before we go into that, what you sort of mentioned what the PGA needs to do. It feels like they're only real recourse or what probably needs to be their most urgent matter of business is aligning with the majors and getting the majors to agree with them, getting to them sort of side with them, what that means, who knows. But I mean, we get to a point where if, if the live tour events are not counting towards world golf ranking points, a lot of these guys who don't have permanent exemptions aren't going to be able to get in these majors that, you know, they keep saying, Oh, I'm just going to compete in the majors now. But Do if you you're think the major, there's any chance that PGA can align with those? I don't think so because the majors are not run by the PGA Tour. And if you're running a major championship, you're thinking about what's in best interest of your product and your association and your group. And it could make your events uh, more lucrative if this is the only time, if you have one group of players playing on one side of the world with one tour and another group of players playing on the other side of the world with the PGA Tour, it makes the majors more lucrative because this is the only time you're really going to see them in head-to-head competition. So there'll be this curiosity, you know, is, is Dustin Johnson really that good? Or is he just beating up on weak live players? Uh, you know, you know, how strong is the PGA tour with the players that, that left live? So, you know, and, and the, the um, you know, everyone in golf is covering their own ass. There are so many different entities in golf. There are so many different groups that run things. It's not like it's one uniform governance. I mean, you have the, the USGA, the RNA, the PGA Tour, the PGA of America, the, the National Golf Club, which might be the most powerful of all, right? You have the Golf Course Superintendents Association. You have the Golf Course Builders. You have the Golf Course Architects. There are so many alphabet soups in golf. It's incredible. And that's probably a podcast for one day. Uh, how do you get them all to align on a, on a common cause? You can't. It's, not, it, it's sort of like, you know, you talk about the problems in college football and there isn't just one overriding commissioner of college football because you have all the, the conference commissioners and and the um, college football playoff committee. It's the same issue in golf. There isn't one unified governing body. And, you know, everybody's trying to um, keep their executive position and keep their power in place in the game. So I, I don't, you know, foresee an alignment coming where, you know, you can deny access to players of the mate to the majors that are the best players in the world. And you talk about world ranking points while well, they're, there are 24 tours right now that offer world ranking points. You know, most of them you had never heard of. And, you know, Liv is applying for that. It's a multi-year process from what I understand. But also they have the connection with the Asian tour. So, you know, the, the 12 weeks you're not playing Liv, they, they may go play in the Asian tour and earn some world ranking points there and get enough just to qualify for these big events. And also uh, the DP World Tour, which used to be the European tour, their, their status is uh, deteriorated to the point where those events are going to be less world ranking points too. So, you know, the PGA tour is almost in a situation now where it has a monopoly over the serious world ranking points, but you know, if, if the 
the PGA Tour and VP World Tour have a strategic alliance, but the VP World Tour has been awfully quiet since Liv actually started playing. You know, who knows what's going behind this on behind the scenes? And you could have a situation where the the Asian Tour and the VP World Tour combine, and that's where the world ranking points are coming for Liv. So again, you got to think of it in global terms, and it's there are a it's, lot of tours involved, and, and there are a lot of complexities. It's just not a right or wrong question. This is the most complex of games right right now when you think about just the, the global nature of it. It seems to me that the PGA Tours, their, their ticket to aligning with the majors, in my opinion, is via the sponsors. Because you saw... With yeah, but PGA, what happened the minute- in the Masters in the 90s? Remember the, the women's movement? The, the Masters was prepared to uh, play the tournament without any, any sponsors after those protests over no, no female members. And then they did. And then they, they started letting women in. I mean, they, they said they were prepared to, and then they didn't end up following through with it. But I think if you look at it, and I mean, you saw with Dustin Johnson, the minute he announced one of his most noteworthy sponsors, RBC said, we want no part of it. We want no. And it's funny because I saw pictures and it's, it's funny that it never really got brought up when he's played the Saudi invitation before RBC has said, we don't, we don't want to be on, we're not going to be a part of this. We don't want to be on your sleeve. There's pictures of him week before and week after the tournament. He has the RBC logo prominently on his sleeve. And for the Saudi one, the logo is conveniently absent. Um, There are a lot of companies, particularly I think in financial um, industries that don't want any part of anything that's aligned with Saudi Arabia. And what I'm not going to go through. Again, that's just an American open, but you know, you look at a business, the world is a global business community. And, you know, maybe they're new sponsors that open up for these guys because of the live. We don't know what, how the rest of the world thinks about these issues. Well, I think we're going to find out sooner than later from a, it's fam- a business story, right? It's a business. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. How is it in the premier league? I mean, I don't follow soccer enough, but is Newcastle yeah, lost all, all its sponsorships. I honestly don't know who even sponsors them. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah. Looking at this from a fan perspective, this is the one other angle that that I wanted to cover with this new tour. You mentioned that they're running 54-hole events. Are there any other differences in their event formats versus what the PGA Tour does? Because PGA Tour, you know, yeah, there's the World Golf Championship match play, and yeah, they've got the, uh, the Pro-Am event at Pebble Beach every winter. But by and large, every week, it's four rounds, stroke play, you know, low aggregate score wins. Is Liv doing anything different from that? And can you see a, a scenario where the PGA Tour maybe works with some of its tour stops to start getting a little more creative with some of its tournaments? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I think this is where you know, it's a little rough right now being a golf fan or a person in the game because people who are not involved in the game or who don't know much about the game are taking shots of this. And, you know, when we talk about the game, the PGA Tour and Live and these other tours we're talking about aren't really what golf is. Golf is, is the 66 million people all over the world that got and play with their friends or their family. But, uh, you know, I think this is where there should be some reason for optimism because, uh this is going to force the PGA tour to innovate. You can't keep doing the same thing each week with 156 player field and expect to generate any type of buzz whatsoever when it's not a major or you don't have a Rory McIlroy or Justin Thomas 
and a Tony Finau in the final group like you did at the RBC Canadian Open. So, you know, Liv is doing a shotgun start. So every player is on the course at the same time. You know, that sounds like it might be chaotic, but uh, you got to think about, you know, that's a long day at a PGA Tour tournament for volunteers and people that work there and for the TV crews. I mean, you're looking at a 6 a.m. and 10, 10 p.m. day every single day. This is condensed. This is done in five hours. Uh, so that's one big difference. I think the team component's a big difference. Right now, it's sort of a joke. Uh, these teams are prearranged, and there isn't a lot of depth in live. But, you know, if, if they do get better players and do get some depth, I mean, I think the team aspect within the tournament could be fascinating. I didn't, you know, I watched about an hour of the live event each day over the weekend, and it didn't really show this week because there were a lot of players in it that you didn't know. But if they do get more names, think about it on a, on a uh, final round. Not only is it the um, – you got this individual tournament at stake. You're going to have guys grinding, you know, to try to shoot a few under to help the team out to, to get that bonus. And if you can develop a storyline over the course of a season, you know, I think that's one thing where having fewer players, if you get enough big name, compelling players could, could work in the PGA tour or lifts favor, you can develop storylines and, you know, repeatable um, people in contention week after week. And the whole team aspect could be fascinating, but again, this is going to take a long time to develop, you know, currently the, um, Zurich Classic in New Orleans is the only team event on the PGA Tour, and that's really helped energize that event. That was an event post-Katrina that was really struggling, and that event gets better fields and better names and, you know, great local support. So, you know, competition is sometimes the best route to innovation. In a lot of cases, it is the best route to innovation. So you know, I think if you're a golf fan, um, you know, despite all the things you're hearing the, the last few weeks, I think that you would have to be pretty optimistic long-term that this is going to force the product to get better, not only if you're attending a tournament, but more importantly on TV, because, you know, uh, I don't, did you guys watch any of the live broadcast? I did not. I did not. No, it was, fascinating. I didn't really know where to find it. And then I, I saw, I mean, I saw clips online. I didn't sit down and watch it on, I think it was on I YouTube mean, and everything. I don't know if it was on any other app, but yeah, well they have TV deals and some, that's another interesting thing. So, Everybody says that Live doesn't have a TV deal. It doesn't have a TV deal in the United States, but it does have TV deals in some other countries. You know, there you go to the global aspect too. But um, it was like a golf. I'm not. I think everybody thought that it was going to be a joke. And the people that this is another thing where I think this whole thing has been underestimated is that they hired people that know what they're doing in terms of production and digital content and social media, and it really did look like uh, no golf broadcast had ever been seen before. I mean, it was you know, rapid fire shot after shot. And, you know, here, here's this player on the course and here's this player. And it just moved from one to the next. And um, there weren't, there wasn't the downtime and the commercials and the, the, the sponsor obligation. So it was, um, I think this is another area where it's going to force the PGA tour to, to, to innovate. It's going to have to force the PGA tour to innovate because I think people saw elements of what a new age golf broadcast can be. And that's another going to be, is that going to be their excuse why no one was there? Same reason that people don't go to certain sporting events because it's well, better on I, TV. I don't know who you believe or not, but they they did, you know, tout that their final round at Centurion Club was a, a, a sellout. I don't know what they were limiting the crowd to, but uh, if you follow the the British media, it was like top story in Sky Sports almost every day last week. BBC Sports was covering the heck out of it. So there was a, a, a curiosity factor and uh you know the the people that i listened to that were on the ground said that the uh there was definitely more people there than they expected more energy than they expected on the third who knows who knows i saw on the first day i saw yeah the pictures like i saw on the first day were 
completely empty. And I saw people saying it's unlike anything they've ever seen before for yeah. a golf perspective. Um, and, and that honestly kind of shocked me. Like I and- didn't have much time. We didn't even know who the players were two weeks ago. It takes months and years to market a golf tournament. Imagine, you know, but they were trying to give away tickets for free. They had a uh, uh, Lee Westwood saying 25 people. I'll give you tickets if you come. And like me personally, I am not, into the whole thing but if it was around the corner and someone was going to give me free tickets for the very first time i'd probably go check it out at least i'd have a little bit of interest it surprised me that they were um it, it seems struggling to get people there but i think it's one of those things where who knows if that really matters right now and i'll there take your word for it I didn't, again i didn't see it on the third round so i'm not sure if people you know you know thursday or versus a Saturday, more people are available on a Saturday to come. You know what I mean? So it could be just that it was a weird time and pulled the others so quickly. And then a bunch well, of people came on Saturday. I don't it know. takes a year to properly promote a golf tournament. Remember when uh, Firestone was here uh, playing in Akron, the WGC Bridgestone at Firestone Country Club? I mean, they have full-time event staff and multi-people promoting the event for a year and marketing the event and getting out in the community. I mean, this was something – Liv didn't even release the schedule till May. Nobody knew who the heck the players were until basically a week and a half before the first peg was dropped in the ground. No one knew Phil Mickelson was coming until Monday. So, you know, I, again, I think this is another area where, you know, can you imagine just trying to pull this off this quick with so many, so, so many questions. Um, so, you know, you looked at some of the signage and it looked like um, they had thought out the fan village and the signage. And if you saw concession prices, I think beers were only five pounds or something. So, I think they've tapped into some of the, they've done their homework. They've studied the market. I'm not saying it's going to be a success, but they have listened to what golf fans around the world are saying about what they don't like about the golf broadcast and not, and what they don't like about the in-person event experience. And they're trying to work on those things. And they did some of those things right away. Again, like I said, this is a threat and this is a, a competitor that hasn't been seen before. And it's not like they just, um, you suspect if it, they weren't getting hammered on social media and the people that were there. So that it was much better and smoothly run than they thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, and this was only week one. I mean, what did the NFL look like when it played its first game? What did, what did the PGA tour look like when they played their first event in 1968? I, again, it goes back to the sports business aspect of this and the media aspect of it. It's almost like anything we haven't seen that they were able to pull it off with relatively um, few gaffes and glitches out there. So out of curiosity, you you referenced Newcastle, Newcastle uh, United. I think they got bought by yep. the same fund, uh, public investment fund, last year. Um, their prior sponsor was a company called Fun Eighty Eight, which is apparently a Asian yep. gambling company. Uh, last week, that company said they're not going. They got out of their deal early. They're not going to sponsor the team anymore. Um, could be that they don't want to be lied. It's also probably more likely that uh, a gambling company doesn't want to align with the Saudi company where gambling is illegal. So it's not, it might just be that it's not a good alignment for the two yeah. companies. You know, See, let's I, just scrap this and go our separate ways. So it doesn't, not that you can really take anything from that, but uh, you mentioned it and I was curious about like who was sponsoring them and what alignment might be there. It sounds like the future sponsor they're expecting will be something with Saudi aligned. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the business side of this is fascinating and, uh, and it's something that like we're watching a living, breathing, uh, you know, sports history story tell itself and, you know, what you think of it or, or not, you know, that's going to be debated forever. But I, I think what's undebatable here is that, you know, um, 
the business side of this. And this is completely shaking up the business of a sport that's done one way, the same way, basically for a long, long time. Well, it's gotten us to talk about golf on here for the first time in uh, several years. So last time we <laughs> talked about golf, we won a big award, though. That know? is true. That is so. Uh, <laughs> let's hope that similar results here. Um, I'm I, I'm a little curious. Do you think we already heard from Phil today? He had he was the first uh, media guy uh, for U.S. Open week, and he sort of dodged questions and said, I don't like that you're asking questions. Um, do you think these guys will have to like ever jump into? You think they'll just dodge it long enough where? You know, if you're running live, I think the smartest thing you could do would be not have news conferences every, anymore. Just go direct to the consumer. You have all these social media channels right now. You have all these different ways of reaching people that never existed. What, what do you really need the media for when you can create your own? And that's another thing. You look at it, they've created an Instagram feed, a TikTok page, a, a Facebook page, a Twitter account. You know, what's the point of having your, having your guys up there on the firing line week after week, you know, do they even need the news conference to accomplish what they're doing? And is the news conference actually hurting what they're trying to achieve? I feel like, the, I feel like they might be in the, any publicity is good publicity mode. The, exactly. I've, so I've that, seen more people talk point. about how, who's talking about, talk about how Westwood ago. and Graham McDowell and, and yeah. Coulter were just like quaking in their shoes. If they, like, if they went up there and just said, yeah, I'm in this because mm -hmm. I, got offered a shit ton of money, way more than I can make on the PGA Tour. Would anyone really hold it? Some people would probably still have a problem with it. Um, but it gives them a little bit of less ammo to throw back at them. Um, I mean, why is Jason whole, Giambi and Andy Pettit thought of more fondly than A-Rod and Rafael Palmero and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire is because they just owned up to it and said what they did and everybody moved on. Yeah, you're right. You know, the easy thing would be to do, hey, I never, I got a family. I got, I got people to feed. I mean, the PGA Tour doesn't offer this type of money. I made a business decision. And if you look at some of the comments that Bryson DeChambeau just said like two hours ago, he essentially said that. And for him to accomplish the things he wants to do outside of golf, he's using this as a vehicle to help himself accomplish those. Guy, when's the next event for this tour? Ah, good point. Uh, it's it's June 30th to July 2nd, and that's the first one in the United States. So I expect that the, – the, <laughs> You know, the things that we talked about happening in London and the tough questions are going to definitely be there. And then the one after that is in Bedminster, New Jersey, at a course that our former president owns. So mm. it's definitely going to be the fire line and a pretty hostile reaction here over the next two months. But again, this is this is a group that's in it for the, the long game. They have, you know, a distinct purpose of what they want to want to do. And, you know, I think the big thing is, will these same questions be there a year from now that are, are here now? You know, this story is not going away anytime no. soon. <laughs> All right, let's. Uh, I got a few more things. Uh, that, I will, uh, really, actually, I got one more because I am curious if we see more events like this weekend where Charles Schwartzel is beating out a bunch of guys that we've never heard of. And on the other screen, you've got Justin Thomas, Tony Finau, Roy McElroy. I don't even remember who the, uh, the other two guys were in the top five, but I looked at that leaderboard and I said, you do this for a few more weeks and people won't really be paying much attention to live anymore because what kind of product is it in comparison? It might be more exciting with the rapid fire and the shotgun start and all that. That's going to wear off when you realize you're watching minor league golf. But if you're Tony Finau and you're, you're beating a better 
field to get second place and making what the fourth place person did at a live event, what do you think? I mean, Tony Fino is a devout Mormon, so I'm not sure he's the right, <laughs> but I get, but I get your point there though. I don't, like I don't it, think he's, yeah, I don't think he's the the typical example, but I get what you're, I get what you're saying there. Um, seeing somebody that you're better than at your job, make more money than you significantly more money for than you for working less. How are you going to handle that? I think I think there's a lot of people and it's it's the general consensus of people that are opposed to it saying look at a guy like Tony Fina I don't know how much he made last year across endorsements and tour money they're going to say would you rather have you know let's say he made I don't know 8 million dollars last year up, up, across sponsors and and winnings I don't know if that's accurate but let's throw a number out there they're going to look at it and say would you rather make 8 million dollars and be able to sleep at night or three times that. And that's obviously everybody, as we've seen, and in the infamous words of Ted DiBiase, everybody's <laughs> got a price, but they're going to say, how, how drastically different is your life if you go from making, you know, something eight, nine, ten million dollars a year to making $20 million? Is that drastically, it's still more money than you know how to spend. Why well, I, I, I'll, let me just jump in here. I, I think that, you know, the guy's point, if, you know, the backlash of this starts to die down, I think you're going to get to a point a year from now where if the guys that are there now are taking all the heat, eventually, you know, the more guys that follow along, I, I just, I think it's going to become less of a story. And, you know, at a certain point, it, you know, that money is still going to talk. So um, I think that the, the further we get into this, the longer that that, you know, the live tour is functional. Um, I think the easier it's going to be for guys to, to jump over, especially if they see that money still dangling out there like that, that uh, the folks behind that tour are willing to, to put up. Yeah. And these aren't like 20% or cost of living pay raises for these guys. I mean, this is like, making five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times what they're making right now. Which is the price so that they I've have. Only seen, uh-huh. I've only seen two numbers. I've only seen Phil's 200 and Dustin Johnson's 125. Have we seen any of the guys like Poulter, Westwood, Graham McDowell? Have we seen like any numbers for anybody else? So, um, no, those have not been released. I'm sure agents are going to get those out there to get their other guys more money. I mean, if you're a golf agent right now, this is a great time to be in the industry, right? Like this is uh, no question. What, what they dream of, but you know, we haven't seen those numbers, but I mean, the, the, the weekly purse on the lift tour is $25 million, 20 million of that in the individual portion and 5 million of that into the team portion. By comparison, and this is by far the most lucrative year on the PGA Tour, the average PGA Tour purse is $9.1 million. So $25 million weekly payouts versus $9.1 million. Only 48 players involved in the Olive event, 156 in a normal PGA Tour stop. I mean, just just do the, the math here. It's like it's not like they're, you know, offering a $12 million purse. And I think that that would maybe really make people think against it. But this is just... It's almost three times the average purse. I think that's part of the reason. And I'm not talking about it morally. You know, for me, this is a sports business. I'm I'm looking at this purely from a business, sports business 
perspective. You know, we can go on other other shows and other networks to talk politics. I think of that's part. I think that's part of where the backlash has been is so long golf has modeled itself as this gentleman's game. Yeah. There is no argument to be made supporting going to live other than you will make more money. That's it. And I think that turns a lot, especially the more old fashioned folks who love the gentlemanly side of it and, you know, calling penalties on yourself and, you know, stuff like that, who are diehard golf fanatics. That is something that they still hold dearly and they feel like let's be honest golfers on the pga tour haven't been making nothing they've been becoming very wealthy in their own right but it feels like the only reason anyone is talking about this at all is because they want to go there and make more money and whether that's good bad like you said that's that's simply the aspect of it that's not saying that it's right or wrong um that's not even from the judgment side of things it's just is that is that what people are going to tune in to watch? I don't know. Well, I mean, like you said, we'll find out. It was pulled together pretty, I don't want to say haphazardly, but quickly. It was pulled together very quickly, and, you know, there wasn't a ton of – There was. it was everywhere, but I bet if you ask 10 people who were tweeting about it where to watch it, nine of them couldn't tell you. And that will obviously get better as they, you know, they publicize it more and make people more aware of it. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be interesting. I'm more interested this week than I've probably ever been in like the, the press conferences before, <laughs> uh, the U S open. Um, I also love the, uh, Kevin, Na uh, locker room setup. I don't know if you noticed that, but he's, yeah, right, he's next right next to Grayson, to Grayson Murray. Murray. The, al- the alphabet gives and it takes sometimes it gave <laughs> in this case. Well, well, golf's slow to change, slow to evolve, slow to adapt. That's one of the, I think, people like that tradition side of it, but from a business side, and you think about just society in general, I would say that, you know, the last two years, we've seen a greater pace of change in the business world than we've ever seen in our lifetimes. More more has changed with how people do business in the last two years than, you know, the first 40 years of my life combined, maybe, you know, if you think about different work models and how the job gets done and golf has always been a sport that's been slow to change, resistant to change. Uh, that's hurt the sport in a lot of ways. In some ways, that tradition makes it appealing to some people. But I think that the players' rights issues and free agency and multi-year deals and things that we've seen in other sports just got to golf a lot later than other sports that you guys talk about. All right. You know, I I do want to ask you some other uh, golf-related questions. Let's take a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's uh, l- let's hit you with a few uh, questions that are uh, a little bit more in line with uh, your day job here, guy. The the local golf industry, um, those of us who are you know getting out and playing on the weekends at uh, our local muni. Um, what are some of the big trends that you are seeing in in that industry right now? Um, what what are course managers keeping an eye on? What's uh, what's changing right now? 
but we just talked about the pace of change, right? And sure. it's, uh, it's changed super fast from uh, 2019 to 2022 and what's going on in the local golf scene and the golf that most people play to and relate to and have joy with. Um, not quite as uh, disgusting as some of the golf that we just talked about, but uh, golf has got, gone under a metamorphosis in the, in the last two years. Really, COVID-19 is unfortunate as it was. It did help some industries, not many of them. And golf and outdoor recreation is one of them that helped. So, uh, you know, there was part of the golf supply that was closed in 2020, uh, the first, you know, six to eight weeks of COVID in certain states. But, you know, it, it, Ohio never closed its golf courses. So from 2019 to 2020, you saw courses doing, um, you know, double digit growth, you know, some 20, 30 percent more rounds than they did in, in 2019. And then last year in 2021, uh, there weren't courses closed anywhere because of COVID restrictions. And there were 529 million rounds of golf played in the United States. And that is the most in the in the two decade plus data collecting era of the National Golf Foundation. So you guys play golf, Tom and Travis? Not as much as I would like to, but uh, yeah, we get out. More than my wife would like me to. But you probably, <laughs> anecdotally, you probably noticed more people on the course in 2020 and 2021. It was a bit tougher to get the tee I- times. I know to. it's great. I know it's great for the uh, for the industry. It is not great for me getting off the course in a reasonable amount of time. Hey, hey look way. at me, man. I'm a complete golf junkie. I'm a <laughs> diehard. You know, I used to be able to leave my office here and play my Twilight Nines in an hour and 20 minutes at Metro Parks courses without making tee times. Can't do no that longer. anymore. Our office is near Washington Metro Park. And I, you know, there are times where, um, I would go to the range a few years ago and there might be, you know, eight to 10 people there. You know, there are days, even now this year in 2022, I'll go to the range. I went two nights ago and had to wait to get a stall spot. And that's something that you never saw before. So uh, this year um, rounds have decreased a bit, you know, right now it's like 7% less nationally according to the national golf foundation than it was in 2021. But if you think about it, if you could have taken that growth in 2020 and 2021 and compared to, compared it to what was happening in 2019, you knew that there was going to eventually be a point where it was going to slide down. But uh, golf has added 700,000 new participants uh, the last two years. Um, 400,000 more female golfers now play than did before the pandemic. So it's up to 6.2 million female golfers. And uh, the game's doing well. It's certainly a weather-dependent industry. We haven't had great weather in April and May in Northeast Ohio. You know, if you're a golfer, we – we live in a great market because we have so many good, affordable, accessible public courses that are really interesting to play. But we also live in a crappy market because we only really get four or five good months of, of golf weather. If so we're lucky. But no, it's exciting to see all these different people come to the game. I think the vibe on the course has changed. You know, we, we talk about you know golf being slow to change. I, I think I've noticed a lot of changes over the last year, last two years, whether it's here or when I travel. You see people playing music in carts. You see people wearing T-shirts and shorts and how cool is that? You know, the, the golf has been open up to a younger audience, an audience that maybe wants something different from the game than our parents and grandparents want it. And it's doing uh, well. And, you know, it's providing tremendous joy to millions of people in the United States. And, you know, it's uh, what better way to get your mind off of, um, oh, geez, what geopolitical issues like we we're <laughs> skirting around in the last conversation and, you know, how crappy your day might have been, been at work or, you know, some of the, you know, things that just go on in a person's life and go out and enjoy nature for two hours or four hours or five hours or even six hours. Now, some of the rounds are taking you because oh, the course is crowded. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's doing well and it, it, it's fun and it's just great to see so many different people 
get involved in the game. They, the game's being reimagined a bit. It's not 18 holes and you have to post a handicap anymore. You know, some courses are doing six hole routes, some, you know, 12 holes. There are a lot of par three courses that are really imaginative being built in different parts of the country. So uh, yeah, it's uh it's for some of the negativity we talked about with pro game and the highest level. So there's a lot of positivity with the recreation game and the game that, you know, almost all of us identify with more. Yeah. That's what I was going to say so is see- as the game diversifies here and, and we're, you know, getting people from all walks of life coming out and, and starting to play more. Um, what are golfers, you know, in the public looking for from their local courses? Uh, you know, is it more playing options like some of those ones that you just ran through? Is it, you know, trying to get rounds uh, completed faster, um, yeah. more challenging courses or, or greater variety? What, what What's on the list of demands? Well, I would say more challenging courses. That was a big push, right? In the late nineties and the early two thousands when Tiger Woods was coming along, everyone thought that they had to, had to have a championship course and it had to be 7,000 yards. And, you know, uh, it's going the other way. Now courses are becoming shorter. They're becoming more compact. They're going to, they're trying to become quicker to play easier to maintain. You know, I deal with golf course maintenance and architecture and design and, you know, uh, the, the ease of maintenance is a big thing because like a lot of industries, there just aren't enough people to work on the golf courses to fill all the open positions. Um, you know, and I, I think people want a, a fun place to play where they feel welcome. They can get through quickly. That's, you know, reasonably well-maintained and an affordable price. And uh, you know, the, the private clubs are also doing well. And you talk about that, that sector, there are clubs that have not had waiting lists for decades that have decade uh, have waiting lists now. And, you know, it's a little bit different in each part of the country. I think right now the last research I saw was that like 53% of private clubs have waiting lists. And if you ask that question before the pandemic, it was somewhere maybe, you know, 20%. So all the segments are doing pretty well. Now it's like a lot of things in life, you know, inflation's happening and the cost of doing business is a lot more expensive and the cost to hire people and buy the supplies to maintain the golf course and to to feed the people that play. And um, so we'll, we'll, really see you know i think next year is going to be a critical year for the industry because i think that you know people are going to have to make tough spending choices you know and we'll see what happens and that can go both ways right like that could hurt golf in 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 a fact that maybe people don't have as much discretionary income or it could help golf because people maybe are going to be doing more staycations you know as things get a little bit tougher financially and that could help the local golf course so uh the people i deal with are um ecstatic about what's happened on the business side because they got an unexpected growth right? like nobody saw COVID-19 coming and if you think of any global crisis or anything that's neg- negatively affected the world it's negatively affected golf uh, in, in a great way this is the first time where something that negatively affected the world did not negatively affect golf it's a strange way to get the growth in your industry but you know golf has a lot of things that people are looking for during the pandemic and post pandemic like I said with the quality of recreation and uh, I you know, I, I think where it's tough for the people that work in the industry is they're ecstatic about how the cash register is ringing and the tee times are being booked and more revenues coming in, but they can't find people to do all the labor. So, you know, you got people that maintain golf courses as golf course superintendents, and it's not uncommon for them to work 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week right now to keep up with this demand for increased play with fewer people to do the work to help support that play. Wow. So you mentioned it. You mentioned it. I follow casually sort of what's going on with the business, not nearly at the level you are, but it felt to me like before COVID started in the years prior, it felt like there was a general trend towards more courses closing than were opening. If any were opening, right? It seemed like far more 
and yep. me and Tino have one that we remember that closed years ago, but it seemed like I don't remember many new coasters opening. I can remember ones that I have played many times closing within the last several years. Do you think mm. that is a trend? Will we start seeing more new courses or is the issue you just referenced with labor going to sort of be prohibitive on that front where the ones that we have will be able to do well and stay afloat, but it's going to be damn near impossible to open new ones. Yeah. And that, that's a great question and great observation. So, you know, during the golf boom, which coincides with Tiger's rise, right? Like in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was a point where the United States had more than 16,000 golf courses. When the COVID-19 pandemic started, it was somewhere around 14,300, 14,400, depending on what stat you looked at. So there was a contraction in the market because the market was overbuilt uh, a lot of it for real estate purposes during the late nineties and early two thousands. So that contraction was happening you know, from the start of the Great Recession to COVID-19. And you were losing. I mean, there were years where there were hundreds of golf courses closing in the United States. You know, some of those were because they couldn't make it financially or some of those were, you know, the land was just worth more as something else than it was as a golf course in a densely populated uh, suburban area. So you bring up the question about new courses now. I think the industry is a little bit reluctant to um, build new courses because of the hardships that it experienced from 2006 to, you know, 2013, 14. But there are markets in the country where there isn't enough golf supply to meet the demand right now. So, you know, Cleveland, Ohio is not one of those. But when you think of the southeast where a lot of people have moved over the last few years, when you think of your Austin, Texas and your Nashville, Tennessee's and your Raleigh, North Carolina's and your Greenville, South Carolina's and parts of Florida, especially on the private side, you know, with these people moving down there and building significant sized homes and, you know, leaving their northeast or Midwest residents. So it depends on part of the country. But there is definitely a demand for new courses in those boom areas. But I think that they're also you bring up the labor point, Travis, and that's a great observation. There isn't people on the construction side to build maybe the courses right now to fit the demand in those boom markets. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of those markets that that we call boom markets are also housing boom markets. So yep. Are they going to take 300 acres of land that could be houses and dedicated <laughs> to golf? That's that's going to be a tough sell. I think where the, the possibilities are, and I mentioned it here a few minutes ago, is that you're seeing a lot of these imaginative part three or short courses uh, come up. So I visited one called the Saddle at Glen Cove in the mountains of Western North Carolina, which is just going bonkers with real estate. And it's a 12 hole par three course with a practice area and a, a, a barn that serves as a clubhouse and a community putting green. And I, I think that's where the opportunity is where you can give people their um, place to play relatively quick their real estate along a golf course, but not using 300 acres. You can get the job done in, you know, 25, 30, 40 acres. So I think that's where you're really going to see some changes. Um, you know, I don't think that that's quite going to happen here in Northeast Ohio anytime soon, but you know, why take 250 acres to do something that you can do in, in 30 acres. And I think par three golf is becoming more accepted. It's really, um, it used to be kind of like, oh, I got to play a 7,000 yard course to prove I'm a real golfer. But we talk about the new demographic, the new people entering the game. They just want to go out there and spend an hour or two and have fun. And, you know, it's great because it, it, if you're uh, older and you got to think of all the baby boomers that are retiring and not hitting the ball well, they can't handle a 6,000 yard course, let alone a 7,000 yard course. But they can play a par three course where all the holes are between 100 and 160 yards. They can play in their late 80s and 90s. And you also get young people into the game. So, uh, you know, the, the cost of land is expensive in some of those markets. So I think you're going to see some creativity with 
golf courses and the number of holes and the footprint and that type of thing. Cause the golf course is a dang, uh, dang expensive thing to build and maintain too. Definitely. I've played behind that guy who wants to play 7,000. He's not a golfer. Oh, don't you hate it? Teasy's playing guy. <laughs> I don't care. I'm, I'm oh. one of the few who like, is not, I'll, I'll play up. I don't, I'm not, hey, did we mention, not uh, trying this to impress anybody. To- this goes back to our earlier conversation. Did we mention that there's some ego involved in golf guys tonight? <laughs> Just a little bit. That actually, that, that le- leads me to my last question. So if you're a casual player who is listening to this podcast and you're somebody who wants to, you know, get in on this and, and start playing some more golf, what kinds of things should you be focusing on to keep your rounds more enjoyable uh, and get you to, you know, have fun when you're out there? Well, I think it starts at home. You need to have an understanding wife who lets you go out and play play more if you're male or if you're female. An understanding husband, right, that gets that the, the value and what this adds to your to your life. But no, that's a great question, Tom. And I'd say on the course, um, I'd say be respectful of the course, take care of it. You know, leave what you walked onto better than the person that comes behind you. You know, f- fill your divots, fix your ball marks. You know, um, don't take your cart where you don't have to and destroy the golf course i would say that that's one thing i'd say focus on your pace of play yeah like maybe you have five free hours but the the women and men behind you might only have four free hours so be respectful of that keep it keep it moving you know i'd say don't be so competitive about it like it you know unless you're playing on the tours that we just talked about it what does it really matter what you shoot it's about having fun and the experience and i think there is definitely some ego involved and you know, people do want to do better than the last time, but, you know, keep in mind that it's really not that important. This isn't the way that you make money and just have, have fun with it, you know, uh, and be respectful of the course. And, you know, I would say uh, also know what you're getting into. If you're going to play on Saturday morning, you know that you're going to get into something that's going to take longer than if you try to do it on a Tuesday afternoon. And I'd say another thing is try to find a golf league to get involved with, you know, something where you can commit to playing once a week. You know, I, I play on a Wednesday night league. We play nine holes out of Baba Lincoln, Avon, Ohio, and there are, you know, 20 people in our league and not everyone can make it every week, but that, you know, for me, my wife and I don't have kids and I work in golf. So I have, and I have a flexible schedule. So I have a little bit more time, but I see what it means to the people that have kids and maybe it's the only nine holes are getting out each week, but being involved in that league and making that commitment gets you out. So I would say that that's something I recommend too, is try to make it a reoccurring thing because, you know, if you don't make it a reoccurring thing, you might not play this week. Then you might not play next week. Then you might not play the week after. And you're be like, Oh crap. You know, I, I just went two months without playing, you know, bummer. You know, it's, it's, it's a fun game. I love it. And I would say that that's the thing too. try, try to build it into your daily routine. And I know everyone is so pressed for time and, you know, time is the greatest resource that any of us have, unless you play on the live tour, money's probably the greatest, greatest resource <laughs> you have now, but uh, <laughs> time's the greatest resource. So just, just find a way to incorporate it into your daily life and, and try to make a commitment, commitment to doing, doing it every week or, you know, every two weeks at a set time. Talking about those weekly leagues, you're taking me back to my News Herald sports clerk days of uh, uh. entering uh, the, uh, the <laughs> weekly standings um, for the local senior leagues. Uh Boy, um, I'm going way back there. Guy Cipriano, editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. This has been a fascinating discussion. Let our audience know where they can uh, read your work. I mean, first off, uh, I've listened to your podcast before. It was an honor being on it. You guys do great work. And, you know, we don't all have to agree about every issue to have a great podcast, right? Like the diversity of thought in a opinion and a perspective is what makes podcasting great but uh, so it makes it better uh, yeah absolutely 
Yeah, we're at golfcourseindustry.com. You can get us for free. We're what you'd call a business-to-business publication, but anyone can go on the website. They can get the digital edition for free. Uh, and we're on Twitter at, at GCI Magazine. We have a Facebook page. We have a bi-weekly newsletter that you can, or a weekly newsletter that you can sign up for uh, on our website. And that, that gives perspective from the industry. And also we have a podcast network called Superintendent Radio Network, because who isn't doing a podcast these days? And it's <laughs> weird for me to be on a podcast instead of hosting a podcast. <laughs> uh, Appreciate you joining. Yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. Guy. There's a reminder yeah. you Wait, can. Who do you like this week, guys? Oh yeah, like this week? yeah. We got to get some predictions in for the uh, U.S. Open. And what Boy, do you think the reception it. is going to be like for the live guys? Are they going to hear it, or are the fans going to be tame? Do you think? Sometimes we use social media as our barometer too much to what people are thinking, and I think we see all this vitriol and all this hostility towards this issue and the people that are. Um, joining this league. And I think that there's certainly some of this out there, but I think, you know, with all these sports things and I guess life things, we have to consider that social media isn't exactly reality all the time. I mean, very few of, you know, I think it's what, like there are 400 million active Twitter users in the entire world. So it's really not that, my point is here is I don't think it's going to be as bad as some people are going to think, but I don't think it's going to be the same as it was before for Phil Mickelson. So somewhere in, in between those two, two levels for those guys. And if they start playing well, I mean, can you imagine the story if, if Phil Mickelson was in contention on Sunday going for the career grand slam after everything that's happened over the last, you know, basically since he won the PGA Championship last year? What type of storyline would that be, whether you, you loathe him or love him? But he's not my prediction. I don't see him competitively competing in this tournament. Uh, you know, I sort of like John Rahm to repeat. He's had a quiet year, solid player, seems to have the style of play that plays well on a u.s open course he's uh you know won at tory pines last year has done well on these type of tough golf courses so if you had to have me pick somebody here on monday night that'd be my pick how about you guys i like shoffley i feel like yeah. he's a guy who's just like waiting to break through all right i'm i'm gonna go with uh will zalatoris i feel like all these big events he's always in the mix and yeah one of one of these times he's finally gonna win one so that's uh that's my pick so I like it. There we go. All right. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the nail in the coffin on Apple podcasts, as well as Spotify and other podcast listening platforms. We are also available on waiting for next Our thanks again to Guy Cipriano, editor in chief of golf course industry magazine for Travis Yuli. This is Tom Valentino for the nail in the coffin, part of the evergreen podcast network. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. 
you'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.